Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you and any questions that you might have for our guests. People say, well, how do you integrate your faith into your job? I mean, how do you how do you leave it out of your job? I mean, it's how you think. It's where you get your wisdom. It's where you get your strength from, you know, in God's word and prayer and and all those things. So it was not that hard, really. It's just like I said, ever since 1986, it's kind of how I've been operating, just trying to live a life that God would be pleased with. And that never changed from Florida State to Georgia to Miami. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete podcast. Hey, if you're familiar at all with college football, today's guest really doesn't need an introduction. But here's one anyway. Mark Richt was on both sides of the Florida State and Miami rivalry at its peak in the 1990s. He's played with Bernie Kosar, Jim Kelly, Vinny Testaverde, and coached two Heisman Trophy winners. He coached the Georgia Bulldogs for 15 years as one of the longest tenured coaches in the conference. He then went to the University of Miami, where he led the team to three consecutive bowl games before announcing his retirement in 2018. Coach Rick talked to us about the ups and the downs of his career, transitioning from coach to analyst, and recently surviving a heart attack that gave him a new perspective on what it means to finish well. Let's listen in. Mark, thank you very much for being on the show today. Today, is it's a big deal for us. You may not know, I'm a father of three teenage boys who are diehard sports fans, and they're also increasingly serious about their faith. And so we have a little movie room, kind of in a boys' room, where they play video games and wrestle around. But we have the Facing the Giants movie poster up there. And you didn't get a lot of screen time in that, but you got enough to make a real impression on them and me. And so they know that we had the faith-driven athlete, and on occasion we'll talk to sports stars, of which you are one, but you're our first Hollywood star as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, that was an awesome movie. The Kendrick brothers there in Albany, Georgia. Actually, Alex Kendrick came to meet at a Bulldog club, and I'm talking to all the Bulldog fans when I first became head coach of Georgia. And he just came up to me out of the blue and introduced himself and said he, he and his brother through their church are putting movies together. Mm-hmm. People love to watch movies and they were trying to share the gospel through that venue. And so anyway, he said, would you be interested in having a part in this movie called Face and the Giants? And I said, well, I don't know much about them or whatever. And they said, well, yeah. look, we had a, a movie that we've already made called Flywheel. He goes, I'll mm-hmm. give you a copy of that if you like it. Then, you know, I'll get back to you and see what you think. So I watched Flywheel and it was really cool. Mm, I've never really seen raw. It. Well, you got to watch it. <laughs> You'll love it. You'll love it. it. I think it was their first shot out of the cannon mm-hmm. and probably produced the whole thing on $20,000, including the movie crew and everything else. But it was a great movie and it was the kind of movie I'd like to be involved in. So I said, I'll do it. So they flew me to Albany and we taped for, I don't know, half a day mm-hmm. and you know had a few scenes in the locker room in the stadium and all that kind of stuff and did my part, which was not, as you said, a, a big part. 
but uh, it was enough where people recognized me. But we did that, and it seemed like about a year later it finally took off into the uh, movie theaters. And I think it's been translated into I don't know how many languages and been shown as an evangelistic tool all over the world. And I mean, I do have people still today that come to me similar to what you just did and just say, coach, we loved you in facing the giants. Yeah, And uh, it was just, it was a great experience. I can tell you that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's gotta be slightly awkward when they come to you and they remember you for that instead of the coach of the year or something like that. Well, well, sometimes it's sad or, Oh, coach i remember you in that ford commercial you know oh, that's funny. so you know you just you never know what people remember you for well we remember you for all of that and same for most of our listeners so you're really a guest that doesn't really need a lot of introduction but i do want to dive in and most of our listeners might know you as a coach but might be too young to remember some of the playing days but you were a standout south florida quarterback and got offers from all over right i think well, you got the nickname I, all I, turnpike because of your awards well, around the state it wasn't quite that all turnpike was a term that my high school coach used to use to kind of mess with you really like what do you think you're all turnpike <laughs> but uh <laughs> i actually was first team all state at boca raton community high school we were the boca high bobcats mm. and my junior year i got hurt so i didn't play and got no recruitment and then my senior year we actually went to the semifinals of the state championship mm. and as the season was rolling along then I began to get some offers, had offers from Florida State and Miami and Notre Dame, actually. And then I had one from Brown University, an Ivy League school. And yeah. I narrowed it down to Miami and Brown. And I was either going to go Ivy League or I was going to go to the beach. <laughs> and I chose the University of Miami. And it was a, it was a great decision that I made. I just got finished with a college tour, and I'm sure that Brown University has a beautiful campus, and I know that Providence is yes. probably a fine place, but my kids really fell in love with the University of Miami. It's a beautiful campus and an incredible football program. And uh, So tell us about being there, being in college in a town you grew up in, but tell us about the early days with Coach Schnellenberger. Yeah, well, actually, my recruiting coach was Coach Saban. It wasn't Nick Saban, but it was Lou Saban. He recruited me to Miami and was there one season and left. And then uh, that's when Coach Snellenberger came in. Mm-hmm. For the next four years of my career, I was redshirted actually my second year. So I spent four years with Coach Snellenberger. And Coach Snellenberger, as a backdrop, he was the offensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins when they went undefeated with Coach Shula as the head coach. And so here's this NFL system that he brings to college football. And that's where I learned, I mean, just an unbelievable amount of all. It's really what was probably the main reason why I got hired at Florida State, because Coach Bowden knew that I, you know, had some knowledge of what was going on there in that system and wanted to know more about it. But gosh, when I went there, Coach Saban, you know, he convinced me that I was going to be the next superstar. And I remember asking him about the Miami Herald article about the signees that were about to be signed. And there's a quarterback named Mike Rodrique, but it had slash DB next to it. So he said, hey, don't worry about him. He's a defensive back from uh, Choctaw High School. And then I go, what about this guy, Jim Kelly from East Brady, Pennsylvania? What about him? He said, Mark, somebody's got to back you up. And uh, oh so I, said, oh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's a good plan, coach. 
But uh, my senior year, Jim and I were seniors. Mm-hmm. Vinny Testaverde and Bernie Kozar were freshmen. You know, so you got Jim Kelly was a first-round pick. Bernie Kozar was a first-round pick. Vinny Testaverde was the first pick of the draft. And my quarterback's coach, Earl Morrill, who played for the Dolphins uh, the during Colts. that undefeated season, and the Colts, he was a first-round draft pick out of Michigan State. So anyway, long story short, I was the only guy in there that won drafted in the first round, me and a guy named Kyle Vanderwin. But I got the picture sitting in my living room right now. That's a, an amazing collection of, of, of names. Jim Kelly, Vinny Testaverde, Bernie Kozar. Um, it was known as, it was known as quarterbacks you and, and, you know, and that's, I, I think that people would still, if you said quarterback you, I think that people would still know what you're talking about, even though maybe there haven't been the same, uh, caliber of quarterback recently. But Well, uh, I, I think God knew that uh, I was going to be a quarterback's coach one day. Mm-hmm. And since I couldn't look in the mirror and, you know, see a great one, I had to watch those guys play. And then of course in the NFL, I ended up with the Dolphins for a minute with Dan Marino and ended up with the Broncos for a real short minute with John Elway. So I was probably the fourth best quarterback in the world at the time. I just didn't get a chance to play. So coach, you play at the U, but then you get your first call for coaching and it comes from one of your rivals, Florida State. What was it like getting that call from Coach Bowden? Well, that call was interesting because I had written letters to every school that I thought I had interest in and just said I wanted to be a coach. And I actually got offered a job at LSU. Bill Arnsbarger was the defensive coordinator of the Dolphins when they went undefeated, and he knew Coach Snellenberger. And Mike Archer was also at Miami, and Mike Archer was the defensive coach at LSU. So I had the connection between Coach Snellenberger and Coach Arnsbarger to get a chance to be a GA or a graduate assistant at LSU. So I had my U-Haul packed, ready to go to Baton Rouge. And the night before I drove to Baton Rouge, I got a call. I got that call from Coach Bowden. And he asked me if I wanted to not only be the graduate assistant coach, but help him coach the quarterbacks as a graduate assistant, which was kind of unheard of at the time. So instead of assisting the quarterbacks coach at Florida State, I got a chance to be the quarterbacks coach at Florida State as a just a young guy starting out. It was pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, certainly is. I mean, you look back at the experience you had playing and coaching or playing around some of those greats. I can imagine that that plays into it. So let's push in a little bit more. You're a coach in Florida State. You played at Miami. Did you ever wake up some mornings, roll out of bed with the wrong T-shirt on and head to practice in a green and orange? Or did you get a hard time? I'll say this. The very first game that as a coach at Florida State, against the University of Miami, it was very surreal. I was still, I knew just about everybody on that team at Miami. Most of the coaches were still there. And it was very weird to sit there and hook up against the team you came from. It's not only the team you came from, but you grew up in Boca Raton. It oh, was, yeah. It's your community. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, no doubt. And so I, I guess after the kickoff, it just went away. Very similar to the time I was the first time head coach at Georgia and coaching a game against Florida State with Coach Bowden and Coach Andrews and all the guys I worked with. That was kind of weird, too, till we kicked off. But it was definitely something that I'll always remember. Now, I'm trying to remember your tenure at Florida State. 
Was that during some of the wide right games? Oh yeah, right in the middle of them. So that's gotta that's gotta be something surreal. You're sitting on the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> Your alma mater's there. You're on the other sideline, and three pretty intense games there for year after year. Yeah, no doubt. We had we being Florida State at the time had so many opportunities to win that game. And I mean, you know, back then Florida State versus Miami was a monster game. The winner of that game had a really good shot at playing for the national championship. And to be so close to victory and just miss a very makeable kick more than once, more than twice, it was hard to swallow. But that's one of the things I credit Coach Bowden with was the ability to keep things in perspective and keep staying positive and, you know, keep the staff and the coaches and even the fan base believing. And of course, that might've been the only game we lost those seasons. You know, there's a lot of 10, 11 win seasons, but never an undefeated one until 99. So coach Bowden's obviously a guy that's meant a lot to you in your life. And I've heard you share a little bit of just kind of how he influenced you and your spiritual journey. Unpack that for us. What does he mean to you? Well, other than my father, uh, he's the most influential man in my life. I mean, he led me to Christ in 1986. What happened was, if you go backwards just a minute, back at Miami, I had a summer school roommate named John Peasley basically present the gospel to me. By the time that happened, Jim Kelly had already beat me out. I was second team. I was starting to do things I never dreamed I'd do. Just going down a bad path, trying to be an All-American at the nighttime games, you know. And John Peasley was probably a Heisman Trophy candidate at the nighttime games before that one summer. And something happened to him. I just, the only thing I could say is there was a piece about this guy that didn't exist before. And I was like, what is the deal, man? And he shared the gospel with me. And, and I was thinking maybe that was the time for me to come to know Christ. And I was very attracted to it. But then... It was getting towards the end of the summer, and there's really three reasons why I chose not to become a believer. And, you know, one was I was afraid of being a hypocrite. I thought if you were a Christian, you had to be perfect after that. So I was taking an inventory of my sin and thinking I could stop this thing, and I maybe could stop this. And I'm like, I'm not stopping this thing anytime soon. So that was one reason why. And then, you know, another reason why was – I was worried about what my girlfriend might think. I was worried about what my other roommates in, during the regular season were going to think. So I'm sitting here more worried about what man thought than what God thinks. And, you know, right now it's so stupid to me to think that way, but that's what I was more worried about, man's thoughts than God's. And, and the last thing was I still was pretty self-centered about what I wanted to do in life. And I thought there was still hope to be an NFL quarterback. And I thought if I became a Christian, God may – sent me on a mission trip to Africa or something, and I'd never come back. So uh, I just chose not to make that decision for Christ back in college. And then my second year as a graduate assistant at Florida State, there was a campus party, and some of our guys were there. And one of our guys, Pablo Lopez, a big six-foot-five, 280-pound offensive tackle, kid out of Miami, kid who lived in Miami, was a, he was from, had Cuban descent. And he was a guy that everybody loved on the team, but he's also one of the baddest dudes on campus, too. You know, not many people would mess with him. And somehow he got in an argument with the kid and made the kid back down. And the kid got his feelings hurt and 
came back to the party with a sawed-off shotgun and told his buddies to tell Pablo I'm messing with Pablo's car and or one of the teammates' car or whatever. And long story short, Pablo comes out and the kid, you know, wants Pablo to back down like Pablo made him back down in front of his friends. And so Pablo was walking towards him as he was holding the gun saying, you're not going to shoot me, bro. Kind of that Miami Vice attitude. And sure enough, the kid panicked, pulled the trigger and shot Pablo. And um, he died that night. Wow. So the next day, Coach Bowden called the team meeting. So the whole team's in there and I'm in there. I'm a graduate assistant coach, you know, taking role and kind of keep an eye on the doors, make sure we have a private meeting. And coach starts talking to the players and he said, man, I, I don't know where Pablo is. I don't know where he's going to spend eternity. I don't know where he's in his faith. He said, man, there's a God in heaven who created the world and created you and me and loves us and wants us to live forever with him in heaven. And we got a problem, you know, Adam sinned and sin entered all man. And so we can't be perfect. We need a savior. So God gave us his son, the perfect lamb of God who lived this perfect life and died and took on all of our sin and was buried and rose again. And then by accepting that gift, then now we're made perfect in God's sight in our spirit. And, and then, you know, we get to go to heaven. He says, but, you know, I don't know where Pablo is. He goes, men, Pablo used to sit in that chair right there, and now he's gone. He said, if that was you last night, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And so, you know, he's talking to the players, but I'm like, he's talking to me. Hmm. And all those memories of my summer school roommate presenting the gospel to me just came to fruition. I'm like, you know what? I know if it was me last night, I know where I'm going, and I don't want to go there. So that night, I was dating my wife, Catherine, at the time, and that night, I said, I'm going to go see Coach Bound tomorrow. He invited the players to come see him if they wanted to talk about it. And so I go in there the next day, knock on his door. He goes, hey, buddy, come on in. Of course, he calls you buddy when he doesn't know your name. And then, uh, <laughs> but uh, I prayed to receive Christ with him right there in the office. So, you know, that was obviously the turning point of my life. I went from this really self-centered, selfish guy to somebody who was Christ-centered. And my life became very, very simple after that. It was not very easy necessarily. I'm not saying it was always easy, but it was simple in that my new goal in life was to try to live a life that would be pleasing to God and to walk anywhere he wanted me to walk. You know, if he wanted me to do something different besides coaching, I'd do it. I just truly told God, I want to do what you want me to do. And ever since then, I've been just trying to walk in a way that he'd be pleased. So let's continue the story. So you pick up from there, and eventually you get hired by the University of Georgia to be their head coach. And you coach there for 15 years and coach some of the all-time greats, current stars in the league like Matthew Stafford, Todd Gurley, A.J. Green. Tell us about your time at Georgia. Pick it up on the faith thing. So you've now changed in the way your perspective on life through Pablo's death and Bobby Bowden's leadership. And now you find yourself in a position like a Bobby Bowden, where you are the leader, you're the head coach, and you're working with young men, and you're the head guy. Bring us up to speed. Tell us about the University of Georgia experience. Well, one thing that was a blessing for me was I was at Florida State for 15 years and working under Coach Bowden for all of those years, working mm -hmm. under a man who loved Jesus, number one, his family, number two, and Football number three, and, you know, football being the players, really, 
And so I grew up under him and really only him. You know, a lot of guys go to a lot of different places before they get their first head job. I was at one place, basically. So I only knew one way. I knew the Bobby Bowden way. And so that's how I began my journey as a head coach to do it the way we did it at Florida State. I mean, Florida State had had 14 years in the top four, you know. So we had credibility, and I had some credibility coming in, being from a program like that. So everybody's like, yeah, let's do it that way. And uh, so it was very easy as far as to figure out how I wanted to go about it. But to sit in that chair of head coach is so much different than observing Coach Bowden and saying, this is what I would do, or that's, or I might do this instead. But uh, once you sit there and feel the weight of that responsibility, uh, it's a different world. And I remember very early on at Georgia, being at a basketball game and some fans came to me and it was my very first year recruit my first class and things weren't going just great. And some guy came to me and said, Hey, my buddy said, if you guys don't start signing some of these kids, we're going to start buying them. And I said, you tell your buddy, he's going to kill the thing that he loves if he tries to do something like that. So I'm like, what in the world have I got myself into? And uh, I'll never forget being at the hotel because they put you up in a hotel till your family shows up and you get your, find your home and all that kind of thing. So I'm still in the hotel. I just got there basically. And I just laid down on the floor face down and started crying out to God saying, God, I can't do this. And then basically God said, I know you can't do it by yourself. But like he told Moses, he said, I will certainly be with you. And that's what he told me in my spirit. And so you know, that just really gave me a great peace to know that God was with me and that I can't do it by myself. And obviously you can't do it by yourself. You need assistant coaches and all kind of support staff. But even so, the weight of that job was lightened tremendously by just understanding that God had it and I could trust that. So you've got student athletes coming in from all over the country to play football at the University of Georgia. You've got fans and boosters that expect that you're going to win and you're going to hold that out. Is the thing that everybody signed up for? That's what they're filling the stadium for. How do you feel? How do you deal with the pressure during that time? What does that look like? Well, I tried to categorize pressure and stress in different categories. There is always, if you have a job, there is pressure to take care of your responsibility, no matter what it is. You can be an assistant coach, you could be anything in life. And you're going to have a job to do. You're going to have a responsibility. And there's pressure to get that job done. Now, the question is, are you going to stress out about it? Mm-hmm. To me, when you stress, if I felt stress, I knew my spirit wasn't right with God. And I knew I needed to spend more time with him because, you know, God doesn't give us that spirit of fear. So if I felt mm-hmm. fearful, I knew I was in a bad place spiritually. Of course, my wife was reminding me. <laughs> she was reminding me constantly to uh, get my spirit right at times like that. But thank God for her. But um, once you realize that you do have pressure to take care of business, okay, and that's okay. That's healthy. It's motivating. Mm-hmm. But don't stress out about it. Trust God. Do the very best you can. I mean, even at worst, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? you get fired. Well, go get another job. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It may feel like it, but uh, just do the very best you can and do it for God. 
So following Georgia, you have kind of a homecoming, very much of a homecoming at the University of Miami. And so you're back in. And most people, when they think about the U, they don't think about that as a great place to live out your faith. And yet you have. What does it look like for you to live out your faith at the University of Miami? Same as anywhere else. You know, I mean, I think everybody looks through life through a certain lens. And, you know, my, my worldview is, you know, God is God and Jesus is my Savior. And, you know, bottom line, that's it. And people say, well, how do you integrate your faith into your job? I mean, how do you, how do you leave it out of your job? I mean, it's how you think. It's where you get your wisdom. It's where you get your strength from, you know, in God's word and prayer and, and all those things. So it was not that hard, really. It's just, like I said, ever since 1986, it's kind of how I've been operating, just trying to live a life that God would be pleased with. And that never changed from Florida State to Georgia to Miami. So, Coach, who invented the turnover chain? Is that a patented University of Miami <laughs> product? Are, are you guys collecting uh, royalties off of everybody? Not me, but uh, Manny Diaz, who's now the head coach, was the defensive coordinator for me when it first started out. And uh, people were finding ways to reward defensive players. You know, the offense tends to get the glory. And so the defenses around America were trying to find ways to motivate kids for getting a turnover. And, of course, if you're at Miami – you got to have a turnover chain. It's a Cuban link chain that's pretty cool. But anyway, Manny came to me before the opening kick. I think it was like maybe the day before the game. He goes, oh, by the way, coach, we got this uh, turnover chain as a reward for, you know, getting a turnover in the game. And he goes, I wanted to run it by you and make sure it was okay. I said, okay. He goes, it's kind of gaudy, but um, – you know, I think he's afraid to show it to me. <laughs> it is kind of maybe a little bit of an understatement, but my goodness, boy, does that get people fired up. Yeah, it was really nice. And they've changed it every year, too. So they'll be making a new one every year. The year one, there was not a patent on it. But I think year one would have been the year to have the patent because people just started making turnover chain T-shirts and turnover chain jewelry. And they were making, you know, Christmas ornaments out of the turnover chain. So they could have made some good money on that thing. So coach, you talk so much about coach Bowden, what he meant to you, the way that he mentored and the way that he had an impact on you. When you look at the faith community in college football and broadcasting in the league, I think it's a lot deeper. It's a lot wider than people think. Who are some of the coaches, the leaders, the players, maybe players that played for you that you look at and say, man, there are young men out there that are taking it to that next generation that are leading with their faith or that are trying to instill their faith in the way that they coach and lead. Who are the, some of the guys out there that give you hope? Well, you know, I just talked to a young man yesterday, Gregory Rousseau. Gregory Rousseau is a defensive end in Miami. He's a freshman All-American. He's going to be preseason All-American. And I know that's how he lives his life and what he believes. And very excited to see that. And there was a guy I coached years ago at Georgia. Ben Watson, who uh, played in the NFL for 20 years as a tight end with a lot of great teams and a lot of great moments. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that was certainly on fire for God, is right now. I mean, I think at Georgia, he's one of those guys that was raised right, but was still trying to find his way a little bit about how to handle his faith around the team and all that kind of thing. But before it was over, he became very strong in that way. And and really the strongest guy of all, of all the guys I ever coached was Charlie Ward of mm -hmm. Florida State. He talked about a guy living his faith as a 
collegiate superstar, that was Charlie Ward. He was a man of very few words, but he was a man of action. And his actions were just pouring out with Christ living in him. He was an amazing guy. Still is. You know, for every profession, it's a little different. You know, stories are legendary of overworked football coaches who sleep on couches at the office or might be texting a recruit in church. You know, where are the places, as you've got this family, you're going through the coaching ranks, either at Florida State or you get the chance to lead your own program, where did your faith get stretched the most as a coach, as a dad, as a husband? Right. Well, just to manage all those things is very, very difficult. And again, by the grace of God, I worked for Coach Bowden and he used to ask us, he'd ask the staff, when are you going to see your children? And he goes, I'm not talking about once a week when you're going to see them. He goes, I want to know when you're going to see them every day. You're going to see your children in the morning or you're going to see your children at night. But we're going to work it out where you can see your kids every day. You don't need to lose your family over this business. And so we decided as a staff that we would start our staff meetings around 830 in the morning. So I was able to get up every morning with the kids, me and my wife. We'd have breakfast together. We'd have a family devotion together. I would drive the kids to school until one of them could drive, basically, do spelling words on the way there and all that. But just I was able to be a dad. My kids saw me every morning. And it may not seem like a lot, but in the coaching profession, it is a lot to have that time to be with them. And then, you know, we had. A lot of things that were pretty cool. We had family nights at Florida State, did the same thing at Georgia. You know, every child of a coach was welcome in the building at Florida State. If my wife came to visit us with our kids, she could walk right into the staff room and say hello if she wanted to. And we actually lived right across the street from the football offices while we were at Florida State for quite a few years. And our son, John, when he was the only one, he came to practice every day till he went to school. And then even then he would come. And when they got older, they became ball boys. Or, you know, my wife, Catherine, was a water girl. And my daughter, Anya, wanted to be a water girl with her. And, you know, if we visit, if we traveled the night before the game at a hotel locally or across the country where we played, when our kids got old enough, I'd bring, you know, one of my boys uh, along with me. So they got to do some pretty cool stuff. But I'll tell you what happened. When I went to Miami – Part of my downfall, so to speak, as far as, you know, just taking time for family and taking time for myself and my faith, I just, once it was just Catherine and I and no children, it was kind of like I was free to just grind away. And I knew that job at Miami had a lot of needs and it was going to take some heavy lifting and, you know, a lot of fundraising and building an indoor and doing everything you got to do to get the staff right and to get the program right. Just so many things that had to be done. I just, I just threw myself into it with with no uh, governor. I mean, I just I kept going hard, and uh, and I really didn't take care of myself. I didn't eat right. I didn't sleep right. I didn't work out like I should, and I really, quite frankly, didn't get connected to God and community. I still got up and did my quiet time. I still got up and prayed, but I really didn't have a community of men in a small group that I had maybe in Georgia and. And I just, I don't know, I just lost my way a little bit, not in my faith, but just in my strengthening of my faith and of my spirit. And I basically just ran out of gas. I was empty. I was empty physically. Uh, I was empty in some way spiritually. And, and I'm really worried about trying to keep going. I mean, you call it burnout, call it what you want. But I got to that point where 
I just didn't take care of business like I should, and it got me. So, Coach, talk us through that a little bit more. When did you realize it was getting you? Did you realize it in the moment, or is it you know some of the health circumstances that you've gone through here in the last year that helped kind of frame that? When did you realize that things were out of balance? It really wasn't until the end of my third season, just you know, weeks prior to making the decision, going into that bowl season, and uh, it just wasn't a good time for me. Just like I said, health-wise, and just the grind got me. You know, when you pour out and you pour out and you pour out and you don't replenish, you become empty. And that's what happened to me. And even, you know, I had a heart attack this last October. And I had two arteries 100% blocked. And there was probably some of the fatigue I was feeling probably had something to do with that. It's not uncommon prior to having a heart attack to have that type of fatigue. I had fatigue that I never felt before. I had fatigue that was made me very concerned about if I kept trying to grind at the pace I was going, it was not going to be good for me. It was not going to be good for Miami. And so, you know, that's where I made that decision. But, you know, the beauty of the heart attack, though, just to elaborate on that just a little bit, I'm not going to go into great detail other than we went, I say we, my wife and I, we get up our routine after retirement was the, we live at the beach here in Destin, Florida, and we'd walk up about 30 minutes and go to the gym and then we'd work out and then we'd go walk home for another 30 minutes. And that was kind of our routine. Well, one morning when we got up, I was taking some vitamins on an empty stomach and we went for our walk and went to the workout. And on my very last set in the weight room, I started to get a little fatigued more than normal couldn't catch my breath. And before you knew it, I was feeling a little nauseous, but I figured it was just me taking the vitamins on an empty stomach. And so I said, honey, I'm going to go to the restroom and I'll be out in a minute. So she left the gym and was out in the lobby area. And while I was in the restroom, it hit me that it was more than just being nauseous. I got smoking hot. The nausea got worse and I could not breathe. And uh, so I figured I was having a heart attack. So I was laying on the bench in the locker area and I called out for help, but no one was in that locker room but me. So I had to make a decision. I was like, if I don't get up and walk these 45 steps to the gym where people are, I may die right here on this bench. So I got up and, and I made it to the, the weight room area and called out for help. And people came around and she would call 911. Yeah, call 911. Just praying, you know, kind of waiting trying to breathe and just trying to cool down and try to wait for the ambulance. The ambulance comes, you figure, hallelujah, they're going to give me something to make me feel better. And with everything they gave me didn't make me feel better. I just kept getting worse and couldn't breathe. And then we finally made it to the hospital and I'm thinking, hallelujah, they're going to give me something, put me out, take care of me. And they couldn't put me out because my blood pressure went too low and they're worried about me not making it. So I'm conscious as they're putting stents into one artery and three stints in one and one stint in the other. And uh, during that time, different parts of my body were going numb on me. And then finally, at one point, my whole body went numb and I blacked out completely. And I truthfully thought I was going. I was going to be gone. And But the beauty of that was that in my spirit, I was so peaceful and so even excited to go to heaven. That decision I made in 1986, was real. And so, you know, I could literally hear my body screaming, gasping for air still. 
and in my spirit, I had total peace. You know, I thought about missing my wife, Catherine, but other than that, I was excited about going. And then a little bit later, one of the doctors said, wake up. And then I, I didn't know if it was Jesus or Satan, but no, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I came back to life, I guess, whatever you want to say. I'm not saying I flatlined, but I came out of that spiritual experience back to reality and actually could finally start breathing again. But um, it was quite an episode, but uh, just so thankful. When it was over, I was just very, very thankful. Not so much that I was still alive because I was ready to go, but I was very thankful that I knew where I was going. Yeah. And th- you know what, man? That's in the end. There's only one thing that really matters, and that's where are you going? Just like when Coach Bowden said, hey, if that was you last night instead of Pablo, where would you spend eternity? Yeah. It was the same thing, and I was just so thankful that my faith is real, and I experienced that through that heart attack. That's a great story, and one that I can absolutely identify with, and I know that a lot of other listeners can as well. There's a special gift when you're confronted with death and can feel the peace that surpasses all understanding. It just changes your perspective for how you live and what you do today. And if you're like me, sometimes you lose perspective on that. And But it's always that's an experience that you always have to fall back on when you try to figure out what's really important. Preach Christ. That's yep. what. Amen. Amen. We would like to close out all the episodes we do on our podcast with the same question, which is we ask our business leaders, our investors, and our faith-driven athletes about what they're hearing in God's Word. And maybe it's this morning, maybe it's not. Maybe it's something last week, maybe it's something within the last month, but some way that you feel that God is speaking to you through your time in His Word. Well, my life verse has been Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do you work heartily, H-E-A-R-T-I-L-Y, do it heartily Mm -hmm. for the Lord rather than men. And um, when I get off the path, I get away from that verse. And basically, it just means it doesn't matter what we do. Everybody sometimes, oh, God, tell me what you want me to do. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? You know, God says, whatever you do, do your work, do whatever you are responsible for. Do it heartily, meaning do it the very best you can and do it for me, not for man. So I always took that to heart. I mean, I knew Vince Dooley was my athletic director and I know Michael Adams was the president of Georgia I knew they were my boss but I was working for God and that was the bottom line for me and here's the thing the highest accountability we can have in life is God you can do your best for your boss when your boss is watching but what about when your boss is not watching then what but if you're working for God you know God sees everything And none of us are perfect in our behavior. We're perfect in our spirit once we know Christ. But we still blow it. But when we make decisions, it's based on a heart that was changed from the blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that God sees all that we do. And we're not afraid of getting beat down by God for making mistakes, but we're afraid we just don't want to let him down because we love him so much. And if that's your motivation... You know, it makes life very simple. Not easy, but simple. That's a great word. Thank you. You've blessed me with it. I know you've blessed our audience with it. I'm really grateful for your time and being able to share your story. And thank you. Well, I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate the opportunities. 
As we finish each episode, we like to spotlight a ministry at the intersection of faith and sports. Sports Spectrum. It's a magazine and website ministry there to help equip, encourage, and use the platform of sports to share the gospel. You can learn more about Sports Spectrum at sportsspectrum.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 